David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baljuda to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. With the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed all the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honoured himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house, to appoint me as prince over Israel and the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honour. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Our Father, we pray that as we come to this uh, dramatic um, and uh, powerful passage in 2 Samuel, that you would help us understand why it is in the Bible and what it means uh, for us, and help us to listen out for you speaking directly to us as a church and as individuals for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, let me just uh, recap the kind of strange events in this account. If you have the service sheet in front of you or your Bible in front of you with 2 Samuel uh, 6, the big 
sort of point here is that God's king brings the ark of God, which is the ark of the covenant, to Jerusalem, the city of God. But the first attempt to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem, where all that rejoicing is going on, it all kind of comes to a, a juddering halt because this man, user reaches out his hand when the oxen are stumbling and the ark is on a cart, and God takes his life. I mean, it's quite striking. And then the ark remains in someone's house for three months. And then David, in a very different way, brings it up to Jerusalem. And the description of David's rejoicing, the description of David's joy, his exultation, he's dancing, he's leaping. It's a great day until he goes home at night. And his wife, Michael, who is the daughter of Saul, says to him, David, you're a fool. Why are you dancing wearing the clothes of a servant? You're a king. Shame on you. That's what happens in the um, account. Now, if the description of the kingship and kingdom of David in 2 Samuel is one of the big events in God's saving of humanity. And it is one of the big events because the book of 2 Samuel about the kingship of David introduces for us the king that will point us to Jesus, the monarchy, such a key part of Jesus and his kingdom. And here it's introduced. So if the description of the kingship and kingdom of David and 2 Samuel is one of the big events in God's saving of humanity, then chapters 5, 6, and 7, we're in chapter 6 tonight, are like the summit of that mountain. The summit of the mountain. This is big stuff. Chapter 5 Rog was in chapter 5 last week, began with David crowned as king of all Israel. The shepherd boy from Bethlehem, right back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the shepherd boy from Bethlehem crowned as God's king. And then chapter 5 went on to describe how David established his kingdom in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem became David's royal city, the city of God's king. Referred to in 2 Samuel 5 verse 7 as the stronghold of Zion. And the narrative in 2 Samuel 5 concludes with David leading the people of God to victory over the enemies of God. And the victory of God's king is a victory won from Jerusalem, from the stronghold of Zion, over the enemies of God. Now, you see the significance of this. 
For as we read these narratives written centuries before the coming of Jesus and his kingdom, they don't simply point forward like a prophecy to Jesus. It's almost as if they describe him and describe his kingdom. It's it's God giving us a foretaste or a foreshadowing or or a type of the kingdom to come. David came from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as God's king. And of course, Jesus came from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as God's king. From Jerusalem, David secured victory over the enemies of God. From Jerusalem, Jesus secured victory over all the powers of evil through his death and resurrection. And from Jerusalem, the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus goes to all of the earth. Remember Jesus' promise in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem first, then the next circle in Judea and Samaria, and then on and on to the ends of the earth. The gospel goes out from Jerusalem and right forward to the end of this age when Christ comes again and the new creation is established. How is it described in Revelation? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So chapter 5, when the king, chosen by God, comes to Jerusalem, is a big deal. Chapter 7, which we'll look at next week and the week after, God willing. Well, that's big stuff too. In my view, the most helpful Bible commentary on 2 Samuel is written by a man called John Woodhouse. And the heading he gives for 2 Samuel 7 is the most important words in the world. So that's next Sunday big stuff. We're on a big mountain, and in 5, 6, and 7 of 2 Samuel, we're at the summit of that mountain. And not to disappoint, chapter 6 today is also big stuff. There's strange stuff in this chapter, details that seem a bit odd, and we'll come to them, but we must not miss the big point of the chapter. And the big point is that God's king brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. God's king brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, a bit of background is necessary. I want you to picture this in your minds. It's actually a better technique than putting a picture on the screen, because then you'll switch off. So shut your eyes and picture this in your minds. The Ark was a a gold-plated box. It was three feet, nine inches long, And it was two feet, three inches wide and high. So it's a pretty small box. 
It had been made of acacia wood in the days of Moses according to God's instruction. It was fitted on each corner with a gold ring through which two wooden poles with gold on them were placed so that the ark could be carried on the shoulders of four bearers who had to be priests, Levitical priests. And on top of the ark or the lid of the ark or the cover of the ark was pure gold with a solid gold cherub at each end. And the cover or lid of the ark was known as the mercy seat. Inside the ark, this box, were the stone tablets on which were engraved the words of the Ten Commandments beginning, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, and then so on and so forth through the commandments. Now, the ark of the covenant, this box expressed this is a day when I we've had what we had today we've had the doorbell a phone and now my phone's going off I think probably it's it's a timing issue I'm being told about perhaps let's not waggle any longer on the tea there we go the stopwatch you'll be glad to know is still working now let's get our minds back in gear the Ark of the Covenant, this box, expressed, expressed, and I use my words really carefully, expressed the relationship between God and his people. That's why it's called the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant relationship between God and God's promises to his people and their consequential obligations to God. Now, as I said, I'm really careful in the language I've used. The Ark of the Covenant expressed the relationship between God and his people. And I've used the word expressed rather than symbolized or represented. And the reason for that is because the Ark of the Covenant was how God was physically present with his people. How God revealed his glory among his people. The presence of God, the glory of God, was associated with and was in and was around that box. Now, just pause there and think as New Covenant believers how wonderful the new covenant is compared to that. For God is no longer present with us in a box, in a tent, or in a temple. He is present with us in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the temple of God, and more than that, a Christian is someone in whom Jesus lives, the presence of God in us. And more than that, in the new creation, the new creation is only the presence of God. That's what it is. So from a box to a new heavens and a new earth where God is everywhere. 
But back then in David's day, God's presence and God's glory were in a box or around a box. Sometimes the glory of God was seen around the Ark of the Covenant. Now, notice and note that God's presence and God's glory are not constrained to a box. God is sovereign and free to manifest His glory and presence where He chooses. But this is how God chose to do it then, at that point in salvation history. The Ark of the Covenant was God's presence with His people. The Ark of the Covenant was God's glory with His people. So what is God's King doing, bringing the Ark to Jerusalem? He is doing exactly what God's King should do. God's King in Jerusalem, God's city, bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem is restoring God's presence and God's glory with His people. Now, this is a tremendous event. There are 30,000 people gathered for it. And for 70 years, the Ark had had little significance for God's people. It had been left at a place called Baal Judah, nine miles west of Jerusalem. It had been left there after a terrible time in the history of God's people, when the ark had been captured by the Philistines, a time when, and this is from 1 Samuel 4.22, the glory of God had departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured. The glory of God is associated with the ark of God. When the ark is gone from the midst of the people of God, the glory of God, the presence of God is gone. Now, the ark had been returned to the land, to God's people, 70 years earlier, but for 70 years it had been neglected. But now, God's chosen king, crowned in God's city, Jerusalem, determines to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem so that God's presence and God's glory would be with his people again. Now, just a little more detail on the Ark. The Ark was God's presence and God's glory with his people, and that's what God's King wants to restore among God's people. But what did the Ark contain? It contained the Ten Commandments the law of God, the word of God. And so God King also wants to restore the word of God among the people of God. And what did the ark have? It had the mercy seat, the cover or lid in the box. And the term mercy seat means to make atonement for And it was here that the high priest once a year entered the Holy of Holies where the ark was kept and atoned for the sins of the people of God. And the high priest sprinkled the blood of a sacrificed lamb onto the mercy seat to appease the wrath and anger of God. This was the only place in the world, the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant, where atonement could be made. And you see all the significance of this, God's king wants to restore 
the means of atoning for sin to the heart of the life of the people of God. So, God's presence, God's glory, God's Word, God's forgiveness, all associated with this box, the Ark of the Covenant, David, God's King, wants to bring all of that into Jerusalem, the city of the King. And of course, it all points forward. It describes, it, it has the essence of Jesus, God's King, coming to Jerusalem. Think of him in your minds coming into Jerusalem, bringing what? God's presence in himself, bringing God's glory in himself, bringing God's Word, for He is the eternal Word, and bringing God's forgiveness into Jerusalem, where He would die. Presence, glory, Word, forgiveness in a box. Then, presence, glory, word, forgiveness in the Son of God. And uh, if we look beyond the first coming of Jesus to his return, his return in glory to establish the new creation, if we were to read Revelation 21, the language used to describe the new creation, yes, it's Jerusalem, as I mentioned, but the language is all about the presence of God. Now the dwelling place of God is with humanity. He will be with them. Verse 11 of Revelation 21 describes the new Jerusalem as having the glory of God. God's presence, God's glory. And we're meant to, in this chapter into Samuel, begin to understand, to revel, to read it through the lens of the New Testament. The ark coming to Jerusalem. The presence, the glory, the word, the forgiveness of God coming to the city of God, all of it pointing to Jesus. That's the big point of the chapter. God's King brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, a hugely significant event. Now, at that point, you might say, so what, or what's the application? You know, we're all up for what's an application? What can I, how, what's the application of this? Very often, the application of Scripture is to raise up our hands and praise God. It's not to do. It's to respond in heart and mind and soul and strength. How might you respond to all of this? If this is setting light to all sorts of fuses in your mind as a Christian, 
This links to this, 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 all the way forward to Christ and his return in the new creation. And that makes you marvel at God's purposes, his promises all these years ago. It's almost as if we're describing Jesus coming to Jerusalem. If that makes you wonder at God's grace and his purposes, if it makes you revel in his majesty, if it makes you just a little bit more confidence in his word, what's the application? Is to praise God. is to thank God that he has opened our eyes to see this. Now, that's the big point of the chapter. What I want to do now, though, is to consider some of the details and some of the odd stuff, or stuff that's hard to explain. First, why did David's first attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem fail? All the rejoicing was cut short when that man, Uzzah, leant over to touch the ark to stop it falling off the cart, and God struck him down dead. And David was angry. David was afraid of the Lord. David was unwilling at that stage to continue to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and for three months, the ark was put aside in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, What's going on? Well, what's going on is that David and the people had disobeyed the Lord. Not about bringing the ark to Jerusalem, that was entirely the right thing to do, but about how they did it. God's words prescribed that the ark must be carried on poles and only by Levitical priests, yet they put it on a cart. And the text is really meant to get us to ask questions in our hearts okay, God, they put it on a cart. It was a new cart. It wasn't just any old cart. It was a new cart for a new day in the people of God. But it was pulled by oxen, not carried by priests. And Yusa touched the ark, and only the high priest could touch the ark. Now, one of the striking things we have noted about David in these early chapters in 2 Samuel is his careful obedience of the Lord. God's king obeys God's word. And David had been exemplary in that obedience in contrast to Saul. For example, he asked God in chapter 4, where should I go to be king? God said, Hebron. Chapter 5, twice he asked the Lord if he should go out and fight the Philistines. And it was important he asked the Lord because one of the questions he said yes and the other one he said no. David obeyed exactly. The point is, David did not presume on the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. So this is how I would expect chapter 6 to begin. It's what you expect when you read it. Here's a, a paraphrase of what you would expect. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and he inquired of the Lord if he should bring the ark to Jerusalem. But this time that's not there. This time he didn't ask the Lord. He just went ahead and did it. It's the kind of thing Saul did all the time. And moreover, David didn't transport the ark properly in obedience to God's word. Now, what do we learn here? I think what we learn here, and we've begun to see this just as a shadow in the narrative, and we'll see it more, that David is God's chosen king, yes. That David is a great king, yes but he is not the king. 
Now, you know that the king is Jesus. But just run with what the narrator is doing. He's not the king, because you cannot trust. You cannot trust a leader with your life, with your eternity, unless you know that that leader is absolutely trustworthy. And no human leader, not even the king who most closely points us to Jesus, perfectly obeys God's word. Now, if David acted like Saul in not asking the Lord and in disobeying God's word in his first attempt to bring up the ark, unlike Saul, he repented of what he had done and put it right. As soon as he hears that the Lord had blessed this household where the ark had been taken, David brought it up to Jerusalem properly, carried by Levitical priests, and before the ark had even gone six steps, he sacrificed it to the Lord. Second detail in the chapter, what do we make of David's dancing before the Lord as the ark is brought to Jerusalem? I mean, it's not just he's dancing, properly dancing. You know, he's leaping. He's exuberant. And why does he take off his royal robes and wear a simple linen garment? It seems strange for the king to behave like that. He's acting more like a servant than a king. And that, of course, is precisely the point. It's a, a pointer to the fact that God's king is a servant king, a humble king. After all, David's greater son, the Lord Jesus, made himself nothing, taking upon himself the very nature of a servant. The only time the Lord Jesus had a royal robe on him when he was on the earth was when it was put on his shoulders to mock him at his death. Third detail, why is David, verse 17, offering burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord? Shouldn't that be the priest, not the king? Now, it might well be that it was the priest who actually offered the sacrifices, but the text kind of weaves David into it. And that's because the narrator wants us to see David, God's king, not just as a servant king, but as a priest king. Priests wore linen ephods, a garment that indicates servanthood, but also priest. And again, David points us to the Lord Jesus, priest and king. Final detail, the reaction of Michael, David's wife, Note that she is referred to in the narrative three times as daughter of Saul. The fact that this 
amazing story account ends this way, just gives it authenticity and believability that David the king has this wonderful day of rejoicing until he goes home at night. You just wouldn't make this up. And Michael, his wife, who was also the daughter of Saul, but she was David's wife, took issue with the fact that he was not behaving in what she regarded in her mind like a king. He wasn't like her father Saul. He was a servant king, and she despised him as many despise the Lord Jesus. David's response to her is strong and uncompromising. God's king will not accommodate himself to those who oppose him. He will forgive. He will welcome. He will embrace but God's King, the Lord Jesus, will never change. We must come to God's King on his terms, not ours. Now, as we conclude, I'd like us to consider, by conclusion, what living in God's kingdom is like. Now, whether you lived in God's kingdom then, or whether you live in God's kingdom now, this is what it should be like. Here is a description of our lives and our corporate life as a church. Three words. Fearful, joyful, service. What's it like to be a Christian? What's it like to be a Christian church? Fearful, joyful, service. Scary, Wonderful service. Fearful. There is something unnerving about what happened here, and we need to face up to it. All user did was took hold of the ark to stabilize it. That's all he did. Is God not unreasonably harsh in kindling his anger and striking user down? David's reaction was anger and fear. What is ours? Or what, what, what would it be? What is it when this kind of thing happens in God's kingdom now? Isn't it harsh? Now, there is nothing wrong with asking that question. Because if faced with a situation like this, you would, I would ask that question. There is nothing wrong with feeling in our emotions that this is harsh or unjust. But we need to bring our questions, as the Psalms do, and our emotions to God and accept that he does what he will. One of the most important things the church in the Western world needs to do today is to accept that God is God and we are not. 
We do not know what God knows. Next week in 2 Samuel 7, we'll read from Psalm 2 these words, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Might we need to repent of a casual attitude towards God and towards Jesus? Might we need to repent of not fearing the Lord? Might we need to be more fearful of the consequences of our actions or decisions? God took Yusa out. And he can do the same with us. We need to face that. Do not be disobedient, flippant, casual, without reverence before the Lord. Fearful, but also joyful. Now, the quotation from Psalm 2 puts rejoicing alongside fear and trembling, and so does this chapter, these events in 2 Samuel 6. There is fear the Lord, but there is rejoicing. And we're not talking just about we're talking about exuberant rejoicing, dancing, leaping. David is shouting, leaping, dancing. The people are praising God with a spontaneity and exuberance and expressiveness, which is commended here and elsewhere in Scripture. Might we need to learn to repent also of an indifferent attitude towards God in how we praise Him, in how we rejoice before Him. It's not the outward manner, for you can never trust what that actually means. It's the inward manner. You know, there are few churches where fear and rejoicing would be an accurate description of that church's corporate life. One might be emphasized over the other. Most often, though, both are weak. There is little fear of the Lord, and there is little exuberant rejoicing in the Lord. Fearful, joyful service. David shows us the humility of a servant king. The Lord Jesus perfectly shows us the humility of a servant king. The Lord Jesus lives in us, calling us to be humble servants in his kingdom. Do not be like Michael, who was concerned with honor, status, and reputation, but rather have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, that though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And so also you and me, as citizens of the kingdom, in humility, Consider others better than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, 
but also to the interests of others. Selflessly, look to the interests of others. Selflessly, long for the salvation of others. Fearful, joyful service. That's what living in God's kingdom now is like. That's what's going to lead us out of the last 15 months and all the challenges it has brought the church in the world and our own church. Fearful, joyful service, looking to the interests of others. As we wait for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness, the new Jerusalem, the perfect presence, the perfect glory, now fearful, joyful service, then perfection. And so we add to fearful, joyful service the prayer, your kingdom come. Let's pray now. Our Father, we echo the words your Son, the Lord Jesus, taught us. Hallowed be your name. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Lord Jesus, these are very significant narratives in Scripture that give us such confidence in the inspiration of your word. Will you help us to praise you in light of what we learn of your purposes? Will you help us to be fearful? Will you help us to be joyful? Will you help us to be humble? And our Father, we pray that your kingdom will come. For Jesus' sake. Amen.